Hey, um, if you want to take your Bible out, if you've got uh, the Bible app on your phone, however you look at the Bible, turn to James, the book of James, chapter 2. We are, this is the second week of a series in the book of James. We are studying our way through it. We're just moving through the whole book. It's uh, not that long, so it's going to take us about four weeks. So this is week two. If you missed last week, you can find it on Facebook or our website. You can get caught up. But we're working through the book of James. Uh, James was written by, authored by, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I've got to be careful to say that. Human beings wrote the Bible, but they wrote as God inspired them. So it is God's words to us. But James was written by Jesus' half-brother. So uh, Jesus had siblings. His mom was Mary, but we know that the Holy Spirit is the one that placed him in Mary's womb. And so Joseph was not his real father. And so, but James uh, was the son of Mary and Joseph. And so James grew up around Jesus, and uh, he was younger than Jesus, obviously. And at first, when Jesus started his uh, earthly ministry... You'll remember that his family came to kind of pull him back. They wanted to talk to him. They weren't sure that that was the right direction for him to go. And yet what's cool is that James did come to see Jesus as a Messiah, and he believed in him, put his faith and trust in him, became a leader in the early church. And so this book was written by him to Hebrew or Jewish believers, Jews who had uh, believed in Jesus as a Messiah and were following him. So this is a group of people that had grown up under the law, a religious system, works-based system, all right, that they had grown up under, and they put their faith in Jesus and got saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're beginning to follow Jesus' teachings and God's teachings um, in that way. And so there's this big transition, and we're going to see some of that in this book, that James deals with this transition from religion to relationship with God. And so uh, this is a fascinating book. James identified with the early church, with these Jewish believers, a problem that we still see today sometimes. And that is that he noticed that there were individuals saying they were Christians, they had converted to Christianity, they were following Jesus, but he couldn't see the evidence of it in their life. There was no evidence by the things they were doing that they truly trusted in Jesus. And so James hits that issue in this book. He says and he argues that if you really have faith in Jesus— that your life needs to change. It needs to show it. The truth is, in James' time, those Jewish Christians who had trusted in Jesus had some social pressure on them. They lived inside of a system that did not see Jesus as a Messiah and thought that those that were following the way were a threat. Jesus was a rebel. He was put down by the religious leaders. And so there was some social pressure on those that did trust in Jesus. Well, we have that same thing today, don't we? We have people who go, man, pastor, it's just a little too radical for me to actually follow Jesus in my day-to-day life. Like, you don't understand. I'm going to be around people that don't believe in Jesus, and they're going to think something's wrong with me. They're going to call me a Jesus freak if all the time I'm trying to do what Jesus said to do because my life's going to change. It's going to look different. There's things I'm not going to be able to engage in with my friends and my family members, my coworkers, right? And so I'm gonna, it's going to be this weird thing, and I'm, I'm not willing to do that. And so we have the same struggle with people that say, look, I'm trusting in Jesus as Savior, but I'm not necessarily going to change my life to follow him. And the truth is, the Bible, the New Testament, teaches us that salvation comes in a couple of different, there's different aspects to our salvation. There is what the Bible refers to as justification. That is when we put our trust in Jesus 
by faith, we trust in what Jesus has done for us. At that moment, the Bible says we're justified or we're made right before God. Our sins are washed away. We have a clean account with God. We're made right with him. Then the Bible talks about sanctification, which is another aspect of our salvation where, by which we are transformed and changed, where we become holy or set apart for God. And this is the aspect that James is addressing. And, uh, and so he's going to press us and challenge us. The first thing that he addresses in chapter 2, the first topic that we hit on, is a challenging one. It's relevant for our time. But if you would, I'd like to uh, say a word of prayer as we get started, so please join me. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for protecting your, uh, the scriptures for us, for passing them down to us, ensuring that we have your words for us in our time. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. I pray you'd challenge our thoughts and ideas, challenge us where we've allowed uh, sin in our lives and we're not rooting it out. God, just uh, speak to us through your word. And uh, I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our hearts today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see here in James chapter 2 is that if your faith is in Jesus, then your heart towards others will change. So, if you truly have faith in Jesus, you need to get rid of any prejudice that you might have in your life. James chapter 2 verse 1, follow along as we read. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? James is saying, listen, uh, there are distinctions. There are things that divide us, right, in our culture. Naturally, as human beings, we divide ourselves out. We section ourselves out. And we see others as less than ourselves, oftentimes within those groupings. But James is saying, uh, along with the other writers of the New Testament, and so the Holy Spirit's saying to us through them, that there is no room for prejudice in the church of Jesus Christ. The church began to break down the divides between people, unlike any other movement before it or after it. The early church began to root out this problem and to squash it and to say, listen, to the, those that attended the churches in the New Testament, the writers said, listen, there's no room for this. And so James addressing this, his example is one of uh, wealthy people versus poor people, but the issue translates to other, uh, other things that divide us as well. There's no room for this. Um, the church began to break down these divides. In fact, Jesus began to break down these divides. Um, look at the movements today that seek to stop inequality. We have movements alive in our time, and certainly some of those are right on uh, our TV screens and our computers, and they're getting a lot of attention right now, that, are, that seek to stop inequality is what they claim. But rarely do we see in this world movements that seek true equality, right? True unity. You can tell when a movement is not about unity, it's not really authentic and real, because it creates division and it creates hostility, right? Those that are seeking true peace and unity, you can see it because they seek a change of heart. They're looking for something deeper. And the outcome of what they want can be seen in how they approach it. 
And so in our world today, there's some counterfeits. There's some people that attach onto an ideal that we as Christians believe in, for instance, like racial equality. It's something we believe in. The church has believed in it from the beginning. We're going to look at some scripture that supports that. And yet there are those in our world, unfortunately, who oftentimes take those ideals and they use them for different me, uh, for a different purpose. So you got to be careful. We got to watch what is the motive behind what is being done. Verse five, James goes on to say this: Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ? whose noble name you bear. He's arguing to them, and their issue, of course, in this case, that he's given an example, is of the wealthy and the poor. And he's saying, you're favoring the wealthy, even though they're the ones who oppress you. Why are you doing this? He says, the poor, even according to Jesus, were closer to trusting in God and believing in God. Wealth becomes an obstacle to us. And let's face it, we, as a country, are by and large all wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And uh, I know we don't compare ourselves to the rest of the world. We compare ourselves to our neighbors. So you may not feel wealthy, right? But the truth is that in relation to the rest of the world, we have a great amount of wealth and stuff and amenities. We have a, a wonderful life. So it's important to remember that our trust as a, as a culture can quickly shift from God trusting in him to trusting in someone else and something else to provide for us. We've got to guard against that. We certainly have to guard against the, the tendency to honor those who are successful and wealthy and to dishonor those who are poor. James is saying in the church, there's no place for this. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes on to deal with some other inequalities and arenas in which we divide ourselves out as people. And he says those have no place in the church. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says this, the Apostle Paul writing here, he says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He addresses three different issues here that, again, divide us. First of all, he deals with racial equality. He says there's no Jew and Gentile. So you know that God chose Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation. They were the Jewish people that came from Abraham. And they became a people that God had selected, not because they were better than anybody else, right? Not because they were above the rest of the world, but because God wanted to show his grace and mercy and love through them to the rest of the world. That's why he chose the, the Jewish people to make them a nation for himself. But they, because they were God's chosen people, because this is what we do as human beings. We take the truth and we warp it and we twist it. They started to think they were better than everybody else because they were God's chosen people. I mean, how could you, how could you not think you're better than everyone else when you're God's chosen people, right? Understandable. But that was not God's heart and intention. And certainly he pointed out to them many times, just because they're his chosen people doesn't mean they were living better than anyone else. They still struggled to listen to God and to submit to his rule and authority. But the Jewish people uh, had this distinctive. They were Jews and everyone else is a Gentile. And they stayed separate from the Gentiles. They would have nothing to do with them. And they saw this distinction. Well, Jesus comes along. He enters the Jewish uh, community, the Jewish world in Israel. He lived there and he died there. He called people to follow uh, and, and to um, come into the kingdom of God. And by faith in him, right, that salvation could be found. 
And so the original church, as it started, was all Jewish people initially. But then the church began to spread, and it spread to Gentile cities and towns. And soon everyone, it became obvious that everyone in the world had access to salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the world began to change. And so you had churches with Jewish people and Gentiles meeting together. To understand the radical nature of that would have been more radical than in our uh, South back in the days of slavery, right? To have African-Americans and whites meeting in the same church. That was radical. Jews and Gentiles were the same thing. And that bias that the Jews had against Gentiles had to be confronted. And so the, er, er, the New Testament writers said, listen, you are one, you're equal. Knock down the walls of racial division. There is an equality of value. The distinction of color of skin, of, of um, ethnicity, of background, of heritage, these are things that do not separate us and divide us inside the church. We see ourselves all as human beings, creation of the living God. Jesus, who is creator, he made all of us, right? And so God does not see us as distinct and different. He certainly sees us as the individuals he has created us to be, but not with a value difference. If Jesus died for those people that you perhaps have an issue with, he died for them. He died for them, okay? So obviously God's value is in a high, uh, high regard for them. So how can we, as human beings, create that separation, begin to think that we're better than? And so racial inequality is the first thing that, uh, that Paul addresses here in this passage, or in this verse. The second thing he addresses is this socioeconomic uh, distinction. He says there's equality. He says there's no slave or free. Now, slave and free man in the days of Paul, my closest equivalent to our time would be employee-employer. Um, fortunately, we don't have a lot of slavery in our country anymore, though there is still some that exist. But we don't have a lot of it, and we certainly believe as a culture that is something abhorrent, and, uh, and, and that's good news. In their day, in Paul's day, it was accepted and it was practiced. And so uh, he addressed it. But in our day, we have a distinction socioeconomically between who has a higher position of power and who does not, right? And so uh, essentially, Paul's saying, in the church again, those distinctions don't matter. They don't matter. They're, they're not brought into the church. So if you're an employer, if you own a business, if you're uh, on a higher... Uh, spectrum there on, on the on the scale or if you're an employee or you work for somebody inside the church those distinctions go away they don't matter there is an equality of value we are all children of god the last thing that he addresses here in this in this verse is gender equality he says there's no male or female and again this is a statement of value that men and women are equal before god in terms of value one is not more important than the other. One is not more valuable than the other. The biblical teaching on this topic, on gender, does not say that there is no difference. In fact, going back to creation, it is pointed out that there is a difference between male and female. God made them in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He had a purpose for creating men and women. There's a distinction. There's a difference. Now, it's important to note that in the Scriptures, there are only two genders, male and female, and they're not the same. In our world today, there's a push in a lot of different directions 
And I just want to encourage you that those directions, no matter how compassionate they may seem, move away from what Scripture teaches and how God designed us and created us. It's important we know the difference. We can be pulled in a direction out of compassion, a heart for people, which is good. Jesus taught us to love others. Uh, He compels us to love others. But it's important we don't shift off of the truth in the name of love and acceptance. we got to be careful of that. Many do that in our world today. There's a lot of pressure to do that. But the truth is, the scriptures teach us men and women are distinct and different, but there's no value difference. They're equally important in God's eyes, equally important as children of God. The divisions that we experience, though, in our culture affect all of us. They can be subtle. You know, in this area, I'm fairly new here, but I've learned there's a lot of German immigrants that settled this area. And they first went from Germany to Russia and then came to America to seek freedom. There was some oppression that they were facing in Russia, which was racial oppression, by the way. So there's certainly an awareness of that. And, uh, and people, we as human beings, we tend to settle with people who are like us, speak the same language, eat the same food, right? And, uh, and, and have the same culture. It's natural. My wife is Norwegian, and east of here in the middle of the state, there's a pocket of Norwegian immigrants that came over together, they homesteaded together, and they settled together. So there's a natural tendency in that direction. If we're not careful, though, those things can become distinctions that separate us. We begin to think that I'm not just different, but I'm better than. Seems like something that we just constantly have to fight if we're to see it extinguished. There were two apples up in a tree. They were looking down on the world. The first apple said, just look at those people fighting, robbing each other, rioting all the time, creating violence. No one seems willing to get along with his fellow man. Someday we apples will be the ones left. We'll be the only ones left. And then we will rule the world. To which the second apple replied, which of us, the greens or the reds? Listen, It seems unavoidable sometimes. Sometimes it's a subconscious thing. We don't even aware of it. That I happen to look down on people that are different, different ethnicity, different background, right? I've got some Irish in my, uh, in my heritage. My grandmother on my mom's side was Irish and Catholic, which is a bad combination. And, you know, America was populated by Protestants. Didn't want the Catholics coming to this country. They feared the oppression that they experienced in Europe. And so, uh, you know, not a favored group. And that, that group was discriminated against heavily in, in the early days of this country. The reality is sometimes there's a reason behind, and we can hang on to those historical issues longer than we should. It's remarkable to me how long we can hold on to some of those things. The truth is, guys, in the church of Jesus Christ, that stuff's got to go away. There's got to be a unity that's brought. There's got to be a love and acceptance. Whether you're from a group of people that my people hated back in the day, that doesn't matter. Experience, understand that James was writing a group that had reason. The Jews had reason to hate the Gentiles. There was oppression that went back. Okay? Nothing new. But, but God calls us to live differently, to put those things aside. I've met women that hate men. They've been hurt by them. They've been put down by them. And they just wish that men would go away, right? And I've met men that, that feel the same way about women. Listen, that's, that's not going to be, that, that shouldn't be here in the church of Jesus. There's an acceptance, there's a forgiveness, there's a grace that we're able to walk in because we've been transformed. The world is pushing right now for the destruction of prejudice. As I said before, though, unfortunately, I believe oftentimes it's counterfeit. True unity 
that the church of Jesus must walk in makes the lines of division disappear. So there is true love and acceptance and true unity inside of the church. You can tell the phonies, as I said, because their approach, what they produce, is never the unity and acceptance and love that they claim to be seeking. The only true unity comes when a change of heart occurs. A change of heart is not something you can legislate. James goes on to talk about that. As we move on in the book of James, uh, this is the next point he makes. Changing your treatment of people based on the law will not be enough. True heart change is what Jesus requires because your salvation through Jesus requires that you see people equally. James chapter 2, starting in verse 8, let's continue to read. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. That is the law of grace. Verse 13, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James argues to these Jewish believers who had lived under the law. Guys, even if you're following the law today, you'd be doing what I'm saying. What I'm saying would be true. That to, to, to treat people with favoritism would be breaking the law. He's like, it's great if you want to love your neighbor as yourself and, and try to do that as an adherence to the law. Great. But that's not enough. Because the law that sets you free is going to judge you differently than the law did. He says, listen, if you try to follow the law, you're going to break it because you've got to keep it perfectly to keep the law. And if you break one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. So good job if you're doing all these things. You're not murdering, you're not committing adultery, but you're showing favoritism. You're still guilty. And if you're judged by the law, it's going to crush you. You're not going to survive that. But then he says, you are going to be judged by the law that, give, that, uh, that sets you free, the law of grace that we experience under Jesus, where the Holy Spirit enters us. And we now have the Spirit of God, God's laws. He says he has written on our hearts. So we know what God wants us to do because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we have the Scriptures, which are the living Word of God. And so we read the Word of God. The Holy Spirit confirms it to us in internally, and we begin to change as a result of that. Listen, we still live in a world where people go, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I know, Pastor. So I'll do the best I can. I'm going to be nice to them. I'll say hi. I'll even help them if they need something. But you don't understand. They're really not a nice person. <laughs> I really don't want to deal with them. Right? And this is our heart. And so James is saying, look, it's great that you're trying to do the right things, and you should be doing that. But you're going to be asked, you're going to be uh, judged by whether or not you showed mercy, whether or not a heart change was there, whether your heart really went out to your neighbor, whether or not you really said, hey, I'm going to show you the love and acceptance and grace that God has shown me. The law that sets you free, as James referred to it, requires a real heart change. And when you have a real heart change, because you have put your trust in Jesus, then your heart really does change towards others. 
And there's a difference and a distinction in how you look at others, how you feel about them, how you, uh, how you see them. And those old distinctions, those old uh, issues melt away. This is the direction we must head in. And James is pressing hard. <laughs> he continues to press harder. He says, uh, if you don't sincerely come to God in faith, seeking salvation by grace through faith, then you're going to be judged by the law and that will crush you. You cannot keep it. But if you trust in the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, you will find true salvation. God will rescue you from the flames of judgment. He says there is a way to experience that freedom, to experience that forgiveness, but it requires a real transformation of heart. A duck hunter was with a friend in the wide open land of southeast Georgia. Um, Far away on the horizon, he saw a black plume of smoke which soon turned into uh, crackling flames that he could hear. And he realized there was a fire rushing towards him and his buddy, and there was no escape. There was no time to get away. That fire was coming too quickly. And so he uh, shuffled around in his pockets quickly, and he found what he was looking for, which was a book of matches. He quickly lit a fire where he was at, and it burned a circle around him and his friend. And then as the fire rushed towards them, they ducked down, covered their face with handkerchiefs, and the fire swept over them. But they were untouched. Because a fire cannot burn where it's already been, right? And so we understand that Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. And when we've been redeemed, the law can no no longer judge what Christ has already forgiven and set free. So James is not saying, hey, listen, you guys are going back to the law. You're going to be judged by the law. He's trying to argue to them to move in the right direction. Move towards a genuine heartfelt change in your life. If you can observe some areas of, uh, uh, in your life where you hold prejudice towards somebody else. You can begin to move towards uh, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. You can move towards acceptance. This is obedience to the Holy Spirit who lives within you. The salvation God offers us is obtained through genuine faith. And that genuine faith has the power to change your life. See, faith will save you, and saving faith will change you. James is going to move into a different topic here, though it has a a line to the previous one, talking about unity in the church and not showing favoritism. He's going to move into uh, what a saving faith looks like. And he's going to drill into the nature of faith and how it should play itself out in our lives. Continuing in uh, verse 14 of James chapter 2, read along with me. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead, unless it produces good deeds, excuse me, it is dead and useless. Verse 18, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. Listen, he's saying this, that that faith without works 
is a questionable faith. Has that faith that you've placed in God really been a saving faith? He's not questioning whether or not faith is enough to save you. He's saying if your faith has been placed in Jesus, then it's going to change and transform your life. Real faith in Jesus will result in transformation. As I said before, the Bible makes it clear that we are justified by faith. We are not justified or made right with God by our works. That is what the world's religions teach, that you are justified or made right with God as you work your way to salvation. That's what the religions of the world teach. Jesus came with something different. He said it is by grace alone that you can be saved, and that is when you put your faith in me. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 addresses, and 10, address this issue. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one uh, can boast. And verse 10 goes on to say that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So they were planned long in advance for us to do. So when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our lives are transformed so that we can do the good that we were created to do. We are not justified by our works, but we are sanctified as we move in obedience. This is what James is addressing. This aspect of our faith where the Bible tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not saying to work your way to heaven. He's saying to work out your salvation. You've been saved. So begin to live like it. Begin to listen to Jesus and follow him. Move into obedience. These works Will, be, uh, will become a part of your life. The good that you were created to do will be seen in your life. Saving faith will move you to do good deeds. Saving faith is more than just belief in Jesus. It is the application of Jesus' sacrifice to your life. The application of it. The Bible, places, uh, the Bible in places indicates that belief in Jesus is what will save you. The Philippian jailer uh, is a famous story. He asked, what do I need to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, James addresses belief alone in this passage. He says, intellectual assent is not what God's looking for. For you to just say, yeah, sure, I believe that Jesus uh, lived. I believe he died on the cross. And I even believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that. That's not enough to save you. (laughs) Intellectual assent is not saving faith. Saving faith goes deeper than that. It is the application of Jesus' sacrifice to your life. It is coming to God in humility, asking for his salvation, and then moving throughout your life to follow him. It is a life change that takes place. This is what saving faith looks like. There's a lot of people that believe and have claimed to believe. Listen, God can tell the difference between belief, right? Yeah, I believe in you, and and saving faith or faith that will save you. Your salvation is a gift of God. And your good deeds are a result of the gift of salvation that he has given you. Martin Luther, who was one of the leaders of the Reformation, reforming the Catholic Church, it started, his work started the Protestant Reformation that led to a return to what the Bible taught, New Testament uh, teaching rather than the traditions of the church. This is what he wrote in regards to this distinction between works and faith. He said this, the question is asked, How can justification take place without the works of the law? Even though James says, faith without works is dead, in answer, the apostle distinguishes between the law of faith and the letter and grace. The works of the law are works done without faith and grace. By the law, 
which forces them to be done through fear or the enticing promise of temporal advantages. So there's a bait that's put in with the law. So if you've got to obey the law, there's some bait put in there. Hey, here's some temporal advantages or you'll avoid punishment. He's saying that's what the law produces. But works of faith are, are those done in the spirit of liberty, purely out of a love to God. And they can be done only by those who are justified by faith. An ape can cleverly imitate the actions of humans, but he is not, therefore, a human. If he, uh, if he became a human, it would undoubtedly not, uh, be not by virtue of the works by which he is imitating man, but by virtue of something else, namely, by an act of God. Then, having been made a human, he would perform the works of humans in proper fashion. Paul does not say that faith, um, that faith is without it, its characteristic works, but that it justifies without the works of the law. Therefore, justification does not require the works of the law, but it does require a living faith which performs its works. We're not saved by our works, but a saving faith is going to be seen in the way we live. Even though the mode of salvation has changed in Jesus, sincere faith has always been the path to salvation, and the truth is that saving faith has always been proven by good works. It's always been evidenced by good works. Continuing on in James chapter 2, starting in verse um, 19. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. If you want to read the stories of Abraham, when God asked him to take Isaac to the top of a mountain, his only son, and sacrifice him there, and the wrestling that Abraham went through to demonstrate that he had learned to walk by faith. It's a powerful story. Rahab, you can find her story in the book of Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute in the land of Canaan, where the nation of Israel was headed in to take the land. And she, uh, she was sympathetic to the Israelites, and she helped them. Her actions are what proved that she had faith in God. She is listed in the, uh, in the um, line- lineage of Jesus. Um, this kind of faith, this kind of sincere faith, produces sincere obedience. A change of heart occurs when a person trusts in Jesus and comes in brokenness and humility to the foot of the cross. Intellectual assent does nothing to save you. Praying a prayer to try to ensure that you avoid eternity in hell is not going to save you. True saving faith results in a changed life. If there is no change in your life, then you have right to ask the question, have I really put my trust in Jesus? Jesus makes it clear that there are many counterfeits to true saving faith. There's a lot of metals that on the surface look similar to gold. Centuries ago, people discovered that unscrupulous operators would take advantage of this trick uh, to trick people into paying for worthless metal. In order to determine whether gold was genuine or not, scientists devised an acid test. The item that is supposed to be gold is rubbed on a black stone, leaving a mark behind. Gold is what is called a noble metal, meaning that it is resistant to the corrosive effects of acid. 
If the mark is washed away by the acid, then the metal is not real gold. This is the test. If it remains unchanged, the genuine nature of the gold is proven. Jesus spoke to us that at the end of times when we stand before him in judgment, he's going to separate out those that truly belong to him and those who do not, but claim to. And those individuals are going to say, Jesus, I belong to you. Look, I did all the right things. I I helped people. I I served the, the poor. I did good stuff. And he's going to say, yeah, you did great things, but I don't know you. You don't belong to me. You didn't put your trust in me. That saving faith that connects us to God in a relationship was not there. It's important we understand this distinction. James is making it clear to us. Listen, he says, if you have a faith that that looks good on the outside, or if you have a faith that uh, is just a belief, and it's not creating transformation, you, you need to press in. Being obedient to what God says is going to happen in your life. Now, many Christians doubt their salvation as they grow, as they go through life. I certainly did. I put my trust in Jesus at a young age, about five years old. And to be honest with you, it was mostly to avoid hell. I didn't think that sounded like a good idea. As most people don't, you've heard it talked about, you read the Bible about it, you're like, I want to avoid that. And so that's what I did in all honesty. But as I grew and I moved, that sincerity of faith was there. I loved God. I loved his word. I wanted to follow him and obey him. The problem is I still had sin in my life. I didn't have complete victory. And so as I was growing up, I would reach times where I would question, am I really saved? And so I'd pray again in a service or raise my hand again, whatever it was, you know, to make sure I was saved. And and that's kind of normal. When we see sin in our lives, it's normal for us to say, am I really uh, in Christ? But as I grew uh, and, and transitioned into adulthood, I made a decision, right, to follow Jesus with my whole life. That did not mean, however, that all the sin was gone from my life. James is not saying that we must live in sinless perfection in order to be certain that we're saved. He is saying that as we are saved and our faith is put in Jesus and we're justified, that we're going to begin to move into obedience. We're going to begin to experience life change. And he's pressing on a tough issue, right? He's saying, listen, you're showing favoritism. You may not even know that you're doing it. You got to stop it. It's not in line with the teachings of Scripture. Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher during the great, uh, one of the great revivals in this country, um, a little bit old school, but he made an important point on this, uh, on this idea of how do we sense this assurance of our salvation. He says this, "'Tis not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption or getting rid of sin in our lives, right? And increasing in grace and obtaining the lively exercises of it. And although self-examination, looking inside of our own hearts, seeking to root out sin in our lives, uh, and obtaining self-examination be a duty of great use and importance, and by no means to be neglected, yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get satisfaction of their good estate. Assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination as by action. Jonathan Edwards saying, listen, Uh, you want assurance of your faith, assurance that you belong to Jesus, then get busy. (laughs) Move towards obedience. Uh, Demonstrate with your life that you're thankful for the sacrifice Jesus made for you. Demonstrate with your life that the Holy Spirit is inside of you, that you're being changed and transformed. In the end, faith is what God requires because it it, it is the only way we can have a genuine heart change. When we come to Jesus in humility, we come to God and say, I need you. I need your salvation. I want you in my life. 
we grow to love and appreciate God, and we move into a relationship with Him. And this transforms us in a genuine way. It changes what we care about. It changes uh, how we feel about things sometimes, but ultimately it changes what we do. So that if I know I'm not to discriminate against any of you, regardless of your gender, your socioeconomic background, your race, guess what I'm not going to do? I'm going to move in obedience there. And I'm going to move in obedience even if I don't feel it in my heart right away. But James is saying the belief is that if you move in obedience and the Holy Spirit's in you and you've really put your faith in Jesus, that you're going to begin to experience that transformation. You're going to look at people differently. You're going to love people the way God wants you to. And you're truly going to be able to love your neighbor. Many struggle with the idea that faith alone is enough. And they do that for a number of reasons. As I said, the world's religions all put uh, salvation on the back of good works and of life change and becoming more moral and becoming a better person according to those religions. And so faith seems kind of light or weak. It can seem like it's not enough. But the Bible teaches us clearly that sincere faith is very strong. In fact, it is more than enough. It is a shield that can protect us against the attacks of the enemy. That our faith and faith alone is enough to save us. And it will result in the life change. There was a safari, a man on a safari hunt down in Africa. And um, he, was <clears throat> he was on a hunt looking for some big game. All of a sudden he heard a disruption at the top of a tree. And he noticed this bird up there just squawking and making a bunch of noise. And he stopped for me. He thought, what's going on? All of a sudden he saw the cause of the disruption. There was a snake slithering up the tree headed for the bird's nest. And so he stopped for a minute. Now, he could have stopped the snake with his gun, but he was kind of intrigued by what was going on, so he thought he'd watch for a little bit. Well, the snake slithered toward, towards the, the nest, and as it did, the mother bird flew to a different plant, came back with a leaf, and put that leaf over the chicks in the nest. Well, that snake slithered up the tree. The man thought, what's going on? What an odd thing to do. As the snake reached the nest, it recoiled, ready to strike, looking like it was going to get an easy meal. But all of a sudden, it stopped. And then it began to back up, and soon it turned and went back down the tree, leaving the nest untouched. Well, the man was intrigued by this, wondering what had happened. He went back to the tribe, the native uh, men that were there that, were, uh, that he was staying with, and he asked them about it. He told them the story. And they kind of smiled and laughed, and they said, sure, sure, that's something that happens uh, commonly over here. What it was was that bird grabbed a leaf from a plant that is toxic to the snake. And so in putting that leaf over the chicks, she was creating a barrier that was going to protect them from the snake. Listen, your faith is all that's required to save you. I don't want you to be mistaken on that as we end this, uh, our time here and we move through the book of James. It is faith and faith alone that saves us. I just want to urge you, as James says, that if it's saving faith, if it's genuine faith, it's going to begin to show up in your life. There's going to be changes. So my prayer for you and for myself is that we don't accept mediocrity. We don't accept a level of Christian living that involves some sin that we just say, well, it's just there. I haven't been able to overcome it. I haven't seen victory in that area. So I guess I'm just going to accept it and move forward and trust in God's grace. Listen, we all have to do that in some way. But the truth is, we need to begin, uh, continue to be as passionate about seeing our lives move towards obedience, rooting out the sin that we often walk in and accept at times. And listen, there's seasons where we just don't know how to gain victory, but we can't give up. 
because the Spirit of God in us is going to move us ever more each and every day towards obedience. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. God is challenging, always challenging, to, uh, to hear from your word how you expect a little more from us. You expect obedience from us. You don't want us to accept things in our lives that are not from you, regardless of what it is. And Father, uh, we want to walk in purity of heart. We do love you. We are thankful for the salvation you've given us. And we have trusted in you by faith for that salvation. Father, I pray that you would continue to uh, cause us to be a little unsettled, a little uncomfortable as we go throughout our week. That when there's times that we've fallen into mediocrity, where we don't represent you well. Maybe we're around a certain group of people and we see behaviors come out that aren't really who we are. I pray that you would move us to gain the courage to change. God, may we be a church that reflects you, filled with people that reflect you so the world can see who you are in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.